Welcome to the Hospital Finance Podcast, your go-to source for information and insights that can help you stay ahead of the challenges impacting healthcare finance. And now, the host of the Hospital Finance Podcast, Michael Passanate. Hi, this is Mike Passanate, and welcome back to the award-winning Hospital Finance Podcast. Recently, a group of researchers looked at the benefits and issues associated with video teleconferencing as a substitute or adjunct for in-person healthcare. To explain the study's findings, I'm joined by Jordan Albritton. Dr. Albritton is a research public health analyst in the Healthcare Quality and Outcomes Group at RTI International. Jordan, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. So Jordan, why don't you start out by telling us um, what you were looking at with this research specifically? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Um, so essentially, we reviewed all of the published uh, studies of randomized control trials that were flagged uh, as involving video teleconferencing in healthcare. So that's pretty broad. Um, we did have some additional inclusion and exclusion criteria, uh, but we wanted to cast a really broad net um, and, and just see what was out there. Um, that said, uh, we did limit the studies to randomized control trials because um, we wanted to start with uh, identifying what's the best evidence that's available. Um, so just off the bat, it's probably worth noting that obviously a lot of evidence is coming uh, from other types of studies, and that's really important. Um, but this study, you know, the, the one that we had published, um, is uh, summarizing what's available in those RT- RCTs. So we wanted to know what's the the gold standard evidence um, from the past several years. What does it say about the use of video teleconferencing in healthcare? Yeah, and certainly um, with the onset of the pandemic, um, telemedicine has become uh, a much much broader and, and more used um, tool in healthcare. Um, so you were looking specifically at the efficacy of, of that and whether or not that actually um, changes the quality of, of the outcomes, right? That's right, yep. So, um, Basically, why don't you just talk us through your primary findings, and then we'll talk about some of the takeaways from that. Yeah. Um, so if I can, I, I'll, I'll tell you a bit about the, the methodology first and, and how we uh, approached this. So this is technically a rapid review, um, which if you know listeners aren't familiar with that term, it's a sort of a newer idea in the systematic literature review world. Um, if you've ever uh, looked at a systematic literature review, I mean, you know, they take a year and a half or so to uh, to, to run those to get that done uh, sometimes. And so by the time you've you had this uh, evidence in your hands, it's maybe already outdated. So uh, PCORI, who funded our project, um, they've started to recognize that we need to have this evidence synthesis done, but we need it in a timely manner. Um, so which I, I think that's really great. Um and so they've started promoting and, and funding these RAP reviews in a number of different areas. Um, it's still systematic. It follows a process. So it reviews all of the evidence and all the literature that's out there. Um, but, you know, they find a way to, to limit the scope uh, and to reduce some of those time-consuming elements so that really can get it done and out in, you know, from start to finish in approximately six months. And that's the, that's the goal. So uh, we reviewed all the published literature from going back to uh, 2013. Um, and we synthesized the evidence, um, and we limited it to randomized trials. And as far as the primary findings and outcomes, we had uh, 38 studies that uh, met our inclusion and exclusion criteria. 
Um, uh, but 18 of those studies were rated um, high risk of bias, which means that um, they did something or they failed to report something. Uh, and so that would lead uh, somebody that was reviewing that study to question the validity of those findings. So ultimately that left us with 20 studies um, that met the criteria for uh, what we were looking for, mostly um, diabetes, heart failure, some neurological disorders, uh, respiratory disorders, and then um, several on uh, pain-related disorders and a few other um, conditions here and there. So we looked at process outcomes, at patient outcomes. Um, we looked at uh, experience of care. Um, we were interested in both the provider and the patient in that, in that regard. Um, and overwhelmingly, the evidence uh, shows that um, that for this, those studied conditions and the purposes, um, that the use of video teleconferencing in healthcare is um, just as good as, and sometimes it, it was resulted in better outcomes um, than the usual care alternative, uh, which is typically in-person care. So when you think about that kind of finding, um, what would you say are some of the takeaways from this research if you're um, you know, a healthcare provider and you're you're uh, looking at your, you know, your, your in-person versus um, video teleconferencing balance. Um, what would you say? Yeah. So for me, I mean, I think that the results should give healthcare providers confidence, um, you know, providing care virtually um, or, you know, if there's a system that's thinking about uh, making some changes, you know, there is evidence that shows that especially for, um, you know, chronic disease, ongoing chronic disease management was a pretty common theme. Um that you know, providing that care virtually, there's evidence that um, that that is safe, it's effective, um, and you know that that's something that should be done or could be done. Um, you know, we, we should of course say that there are, are definitely going to be areas where virtual care is not preferred, um, and maybe it's not effective. Um, unfortunately, those aren't uh, the well, maybe fortunately, because you know. If, if we know it's not going to be effective, um, you know, that's not something that's going to show up in a, in a randomized control trial for sure. Um, so, I, but I think that that kind of even gets to the point that providers, policymakers, um, you know, planners, uh, people out there are probably aware of a lot of those areas where, um, you know, telehealth is not going to be appropriate. Um, but it's, it's these ones, um, you know, the, the kinds of, uh, conditions and, and purposes where it was studied in this um, in the studies that we found um, that there is a lot of evidence it seems like that um, that people should be confident uh, to use video telehealth so uh, we found several studies um, again with key outcomes that actually favored the telehealth group um, there weren't any clear patterns that we could draw from that as far as where um, where the, the telehealth, the video conferencing group um, would be favored. Um, but I think it's a, it's an important thing. And I think there's growing recognition that, you know, virtual care can actually be used um, to produce better outcomes than uh, usual care or in-person care in some instances. Again, not for every condition, um, you know, but there are a number of benefits, timeliness, convenience, completeness. Um, you know, you can, has sort of integration uh, that maybe is superior than if somebody just comes into the office. Jordan, were there anything about these findings that surprised you? Um, 
yeah, I can think of two things that, that surprised me. Um, first one is that, you know, actually I think I expected there to be a little more literature out there um, than what we found, um, especially given that we were casting a pretty broad net. Um, but again, we were limiting only to randomized control trials. So um, that was um, sort of our, our limiting factor. But, um, the other the other issue with that is that, again, uh, 18 of the 38 studies that otherwise met our criteria um, had, you know, one or two things or more um, that led us to question the validity of the findings um, and just, um, you know, there might be some bias there. So, um, so some of it has to do with the quality of the studies. Um, and, and really that uh, there were uh, only a handful of um, conditions that were actually well covered. Um, as I mentioned before, so so that that's definitely um, part of it. The second thing that uh, surprised me, perhaps, um, is that the vast majority of the studies uh, included what we're we're calling multiple component, uh, multi-component interventions, and so um, you know, and, and none of those studies uh, conducted component analyses. So what I mean by that is that they didn't just do video teleconferencing, but they did video teleconferencing and something else, whether that's remote patient monitoring, like giving a blood pressure cuff or some virtual education, or there was some, um, you know, messaging platform. Um, and I think that, you know, in some, in some sense, that really makes sense. That's kind of how the world works, you know, other than things perhaps like, Teladoc and MD Live, most telehealth solutions, I think, tend to be implemented with other components um, to support patient care and improve outcomes. Um, but again, 16 out of the 20 studies that we ultimately reviewed um, in the article that we had published um, were these multi-component interventions. So they were teasing out the differences of the impact of video um, uh, is, you know, ultimately it was a little, a little bit more challenging. Based on what you found, what do you think this means for healthcare providers moving forward? Yeah, well, I'd say that it's, I think that it's pretty clear that telehealth, um, and in particular video teleconferencing and healthcare, is, it's not going anywhere. Um, you know, as we mentioned, um, definitely the pandemic is, is, is was driving a lot of this. Uh, 2020 saw a, a huge shift in the way that we're delivering healthcare. Um, I think the other thing is that uh, it's important to note that, um, again, most of these studies were set up with these multi-component interventions, and that's how telehealth is used in the real world. So I think providers should be prepared for additional tools to become available that are going to make the use of video teleconferencing in, in healthcare even more effective. Um, and if I was a healthcare provider, um, you know, or working with a practice, uh, I, I would, I'd be thinking about, um, you know, the potential disruption that might come from that uh, and, and again this is really beyond this study now what i'm talking about but think about if if patients had um artificial artificial intelligence um like guided diagnostic tools like otoscopes and stethoscopes at home that you know would maybe allow them to um to to have more effective um, video visits um, where they actually have some of the evidence and the in the tools um you know, that are needed um, in the office. And you probably have people who are less likely to come in for things like the common cold and ear infections. Um, and so that could negatively impact some, you know, healthcare practices and, and systems. But 
Um, maybe it makes uh, time for more effective chronic disease management, which again, um, we'll probably move towards this hybrid model um, where it includes virtual care and, and in-person care. Um, and I, I think that's really the next question um, is uh, that, you know, that these RCTs won't answer is how should virtual care be integrated into the existing system um, so that we can really drive improvement and reduce cost. It's, it's not a matter of if or, or really when, um, but, but it's how. Uh, and, and people are doing that. It's really exciting to see. Um, and I think that's where telehealth really will become transformative is when we, we know the best way to do this and, and we can drive people towards value. Um, and, and if you're not ready for that, um, you know, then, you know, you might have a challenge uh, in the sort of environment is, is potential disruption kind of takes place. Jordan, where can someone learn more about you or get a copy of the study? Yeah. Um, well, yeah, for sure. The, the study is published in uh, the Annals of Internal Medicine last month. Um, so December, 2021. So that would be a good place to look for the study. Um, and I also should should say that um, we do have a full report that's published and publicly available on PCORI's website. Um, and so that would be another great place to look. I think that um, the collaboration that we've had with PCORI for this study, um, for this work is, um, is really great. Um, and, and they're doing other work like this as well. Um, and then if anybody wants to reach out to me or has any other questions, um, certainly can send me an email. Um, and then my email is uh, jallbritton at rti.org. So happy to have discussions uh, with, with anybody that's interested. Jordan Albritton, thanks for coming by the Hospital Finance Podcast today. All right. Thanks so much. If you have a topic that you'd like us to discuss on the Hospital Finance Podcast, or if you'd like to be a guest, drop us a line at update at Bessler.com. This concludes today's episode of the Hospital Finance Podcast. For show notes and additional resources to help you protect and enhance revenue at your hospital, visit Bessler.com forward slash podcasts. The Hospital Finance Podcast is a production of Bessler. Smart about revenue, tenacious about results.